Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Welcome back to Sick Meets World. This month, we have a very special episode with the highest ranking sick in public office in the United States, Attorney General Gurbir Singh Graywall from New Jersey. Gurbir was appointed Attorney General in late 2017 and has been making headlines ever since. Gerwin, what did you guys talk about? The Attorney General was super gracious. He gave us an hour-long interview to go through everything from his life, from growing up, how he got into public service his policy agenda in New Jersey, and his thoughts on our turbulent politics. Without further ado, here's our conversation with the Attorney General. Mr. Attorney General, you are the highest ranking sick public official in the United States in a generation. And you're the chief law enforcement officer in New Jersey. And to to be perfectly frank with you, as someone that spent nearly a decade in politics, I, I was never even sure I would see someone like you until I was, you know, much older. Um, and, you know, what I would love to get at, uh, because I think the whole sick community, quite frankly, around the world has, has gotten acquainted with you, or at least has, has heard of you, um, I want to take a step back and, and really kind of understand how, how you got to this position. Um, so I want to start when you were kind of growing up, uh, because you grew up in a very different time in the United States. Um, there was a huge influx of Asian American immigrants. Um, the culture today is, is in some ways, uh, for, particularly for young people, uh, much more you know, favorable to, and understanding towards young, young people right. uh, young, that are diverse. What was it like for you growing up? So, so first of all, I'm just happy to be part of this podcast, and I'm happy that you're you're putting this together so others can not just hear about how I got where I am, but how other six have achieved success uh, in whatever discipline that they're in. Uh, you're right. When I was growing up, uh, I was born and raised in New Jersey. Uh, there were not many six uh, in this community. Uh, I'm not too far from where I grew up right now. We're in our Newark office today. Uh, but we would get excited when we go to the shopping mall and see another sick family. I mean, that's how few of us there yeah, were, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so at that time, we, you were always the first sick in your elementary school. You were always the first sick, you know, in, in whatever activity you were participating in. You were always the first in, in middle school, high school, you name it. Uh, you walk around, you stood out. Uh, and so it was a much, much different time and uh, different also in the sense that we did not have the organized presence we have today to help explain who we are and to help explain uh, our, our faith traditions and our beliefs and, and uh, you know, the concerns. We didn't have a sick coalition. We didn't have a national sick campaign. We didn't have SOLDEF. We didn't have United Six. We didn't have all these uh, you know, organizations out there uh, lobbying on our behalf. So we were our own lobbyists and we weren't very good at it. Uh, and so we fell short. And, uh, I think we sort of retreated into our comfort zones, into our gurdwaras, into mm-hmm. our communities, and that's how we sort of dealt with the outward pressures that were right. coming at us. So it was entirely different than, than where we are today, which is a, very much a much more of a multicultural, multi-religious, multi-ethnic, much more of an accepting society, despite everything that's going on in D.C. Right. Uh, we're still in a much better place than we were right. uh, when I was growing up in New Jersey. Right. Were you, were you ever bullied? Uh, I mean, bullying was, uh, I mean, it was just every day, right? Oh, wow. I mean, it, it was, um, you know, I, I, it was different when I was first, I went to elementary school initially in a town that I went to kindergarten in. I went yeah. to, you know, uh, I knew everybody. So we all grew up together. And so it didn't really hit me then, even though uh, I was the only sick at a Catholic school, believe it or not, Our Lady of Good Counsel. Yeah. Uh, I got exempted from mass and 
and all the other religious uh, classes that everyone else had to take. But I grew up around those kids, and, and I grew up in the same neighborhoods as they did. And so it was never an issue. We, we just knew each other as, you know, I'm Gerbier, you're Steve, or you're Joe, or whatever the case may be. When I moved in fifth grade, and I went to a community where they didn't know any six in the fifth grade class I entered, uh, it, it just, from the get-go, it was like, who the heck is this guy wearing this butka? Who the, you know, why does he have that on his head? Who are his parents? Why do they speak with such a funny accent? Mm -hmm. You know, what do they believe? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, you, you graft on top of that everything else that's starting to happen. You know, um, I always like to say, the only time I felt like an outsider in that, f you know, before fifth grade was, you know, when we had, you know, Gaddafi and, and others and, and, you know, certain world events or, you know, um, the, the Persian, uh, not Persian, but the, uh, you know, the, the Iranian sort of uh, interference and in, I guess it was the oil crisis or whatever yeah. it was back then. Yeah, that's like everyone would look at you like, oh, you're them. But yeah, I mean, it was so it was one I was in fifth grade when I moved. And, and that's like, you know, when, when you're in an environment where they, you didn't grow up with these kids, it was just constant, whether it's, you know, name calling, whether it's physical. Uh, and it took a while. And for me, it only subsided when I started playing sports and I excelled at sports. And then you developed, you know, that's where people don't see color, really. Mm -hmm. Like when you're playing on the same team yep, towards the same goal. Yeah. Uh, and then that became my crutch. Right. Uh, and, and that got me through. What sports did you play? Uh, I played soccer. I played basketball uh, growing up. And I played tennis. And, and I excelled at tennis. Yeah. And uh, so, but it was really the team sports, like soccer and basketball. And then just having that group of friends, uh, you know, who had your back when you were on the field and who had your back when you were in school. Uh, that was certainly something that got me through that time. Uh, and then in addition to that, I mean, I think... Um, you know, it's, it was the Gurdwara, mm -hmm. right? We, we established a Gurdwara here in New Jersey, in Bergen County, in Glenrock, where I, I now live. Uh, and uh, you started to meet other families, and you started to meet other kids your age, and you started to support each other. So, you know, you became your own support networks. And for me, that was, you know, meeting Amr and Ravi Bala, right? Ravi was my age. Amr was a few years older than us. Uh, and that we just formed such a bond at that early age. Before there was even a Gurdwara, we would meet, there was a tent there, and we would meet there, and while our parents, you know, did Girtan inside, yeah. and, and we were outside playing baseball, yeah. and just yeah. there for each other, and we commiserated with each other, and, you know, shared sort of the experiences that we were experiencing uh, in our, you know, different schools and our different lives, uh, you know, a few miles from each other, actually, from where we uh, we, we grew up maybe five or six miles from each other. Yeah, I want to I want to ask you about that because, well, I, I, you know, the New York Times highlighted this friendship, which is, you know, New York Times doesn't really highlight that many friendships. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I I, I want to bring it up not because of the, that that article, uh, but you, you know, one one of the episodes that we're going to have on this podcast is with uh, Dr. Marwa, who was. A Dalip Singh Sons campaign manager right. who, you know, really since you, he was the highest ranking Sikh public official. And him and uh, Bhagat Singh Thin, who very famously um, took his case, who fought in World War I, took his, yeah, took his case to the Supreme Court to become a citizen, they actually were all friends. I didn't know that. I yeah. I, I had I, didn't I did that. not know that. I, I when we yeah, when I did the interview with Dr. Marwa, I did zero research because we didn't know we were gonna do a podcast at that yeah. time. And he told me, Yeah, we were all friends and we lived like relatively close to each other and we would at that time the big right. debate was immigration policy yeah. with Lyndon Johnson in the Civil Rights Act. And they would get together Yes. Yeah. And they would get into like go to a basement like uncles do yeah. and they would talk about talk about how do we how do we get this thing passed right. what can we do and you know they obviously had a hand in passing it and um it, it helped bring most of our community here but when I, the i say all this because when i read that story i immediately thought of those three and wow. I, I mean I, yeah i just think because you um ravi and Umar have all done very monumental things for our community in the United States. Ravi becoming um, uh, first turban mayor, mayor, yeah, uh, yourself, and then uh, Amr started the Sikh Coalition, right. uh, which is you know marquee organization. Right. 
seventeen years ago this week. Yeah, I, I don't know if you had any reflections on that or. You know, I, I think, um, you know, certainly, certainly we supported each other, right? Uh, which I mentioned earlier because we were all experiencing you know, forms of bullying and intolerance in our own communities, and w when we got together at the Gurdwara. Uh, we were able to just sort of get each other through those moments. And I think, you know, those experiences, being a sick, you know, just being, uh, I always say this when I have an opportunity to talk about it, that sicks are really natural born public servants, right? Mm -hmm. That we, you know, we, uh, you know, Dr. King talked about it in, in, in Letter from a Birmingham Jail, right? When he talks about the interrelatedness and connectedness of mm -hmm. all of us, uh, of humanity, what happens here affects every, you know, someone there, and, and injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. These are concepts that we grow up with, right. right? These are concepts that are fundamental. And so when you experience injustice, when you, are, you know, grow up in a tradition where there's a value placed on fighting you know, f against injustice, I think that sets really sort of the foundation for you to go into public service. And I think right. Amr had a passion for it and he was older than us, and he was sort of our role model growing mm -hmm. up, that he went to law school, uh, he went to Case Western, right. not too oh, far really? from here. Yeah, yeah, he went oh, to Case wow. Western. Uh, and I'm from Cleveland audience. Yeah, yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, cases uh, in Cleveland. Yep, so, um, so he went there, and, and, and he was very passionate about public service, and we just sort of looked to his example. And, and, so cool. and then we both went to law school at the same time. Yeah. Uh, Ravi was at Tulane, and I was at William & Mary. And I think, you know, it, it just set the example. And we didn't, you know, Amr went to a firm right, um, right after law school, but, you know, there were other triggering events later that really brought us into public service. And I think it was similar for all of us. Um, but it was, you know, that early friendship, I think, you know, you share values, you share concerns about what's going on across the world, what was happening in India from a civil rights perspective, from a human rights perspective, what's happening in other parts of the world and then growing up in a tradition that really prompts you to to speak up and fight against injustice i think right. that set the table right. uh, for us to pursue the careers that we did pursue right so you think that that aspect of sikhism is what inspired you to to get into that line of work i, I think it's certainly you know like i said it sets the foundation right when when you're when your spiritual beliefs and your political beliefs and, and your professional work can all line up, I don't yeah. think there's more, anything more satisfying that you can do. And that's right. why I say, yeah, I totally agree. that's why I say that, you know, we're natural born public servants. And it's a shame that more of us in, in the Sikh tradition don't go into public service. And, and that's the sort of struggle for all new immigrant generations that come here, that the, you know, your, your parents come here for better economic and educational opportunities, and then they want you to take advantage of those better economic mm -hmm and educational opportunities and then they want you to succeed professionally right you know it's a, it's a traditional thing i don't right. i don't know your parents oh, but no, I, no. I i'm I, sure it was be a good doctor be a good lawyer yes. and if you're not going to be either of those be a good engineer yes uh, and no one ever says you know what beta if you want to be a cop be a great cop if you want to be <laughs> a, a, a first responder be a yeah. great first responder right. no one ever you know pushes you there because you know they fought so hard to get here and put down roots so right. we could achieve success educationally and, and professionally that you're always pushed in that other direction and and you're seeing that shift now but um but you know i i think hopefully as more and more folks see the value of it uh and see how you know ravi going into public service uh, grabir going into public service whoever it may be not only are you doing tremendous good but it's having such a such a wonderful benefit i think for the the rest of the Sikh community that others can think that such careers are possible for them. And then you're just ambassadors too, that, you know, I, I, I'm the chief law enforcement officer for a state of nine million people, right? I have supervisory authority over 21 county prosecutors, 30 plus thousand law enforcement officers. I mean, we set the policy here through mm -hmm. attorney general's directives, through training, that's decided on, on a signature, right? So we could say we want implicit bias training for all law enforcement. We want mm -hmm. cultural sensitivity training for all law enforcement in this state. And, and to be the face of this office, looking the way I do and, and believing what I do, uh, I think that has such a residual benefit that, that yeah. we might not realize it, but you're impacting law enforcement. When you're impacting law enforcement, yeah. you're impacting communities. Uh, and so, you know, if, as more and more of us get into public service, 
um, I think hate, intolerance, all those things fall by the wayside, right? Because it just you're just part of the system. A hundred percent, a hundred. And sometimes we are our own limiters. And I'll, I'll give you a story. Like I, I remember when I, almost exactly how you described it. I wanted to get into public service when I was in college. I was in college. I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do, and I, I knew I was not smart enough to be a doctor. Like I would not be able to get yeah. through like however x many years of school. I was just just wasn't going to be able to do it. Right. And um, Brian, you was inspired by Barack Obama. And um, I told my dad, I was like, you know, I, I want to try to work for Barack Obama. And he looked at me dead in the face. He's like, you're not going to get into politics. <laughs> you're No one looking like you, like with well, his life experience, yeah. which I, I think at that time was rational. Yeah. If, you, if you look at it from his angle, it was like, you are not going to make it in politics. Politics, no one looking like you is going to work at the White House. Right. And... He ended up being 100% wrong. And I'm, but I had to, if I would have listened to him, which I'm sure many of their parents sure. did listen to their parents, not saying that you shouldn't listen to your parents. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but we are our own limiters. Yeah, you know, we can, we can, sometimes we can limit ourselves and what right. we're capable of. And I think what gets me excited about people like you and Ravi Umar is that it not only challenges that, but it creates space for the older generation where they have almost every belief to the contrary right. to take a step back and say, you know what, go ahead. Right. Do you know what I mean? 100%. I mean, you know, the amount of sort of focus we've placed or the generations before us have placed on building institutions, on building gurdwaras, on building, you know, the organizations that they built, tremendous money was spent on all that, which is important, right? right? But I think... Rubby's campaign right. probably did more to, to inform people in this state and probably throughout the country right. about who six are right. and what our beliefs are, right? right? Uh, and, and, you know, I think it's not that we don't have to build institutions. We also have to build political institutions and foundations where we could have sort of a launching pad to pursue these careers because, you know, you, it, again, it goes back to the residual benefit. It, not only is Rubby engaging in public service, he's also promoting six and, 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 and what it is and, and promoting acceptance. Mm -hmm. So I think it's huge. Yeah. So how, how did you decide to go into public service? Uh, because you were in a situation when I decided was, was far more fraught than I was. Because there was literally nobody. There was no Barack yeah. Obama. There was nothing. Yeah. Right? There, was, there, was, there wasn't anybody to really... Yeah. Yeah. You know, so... Um, so I'm, I, I say, you know, that we should pu push more people to public service. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I was victim of being that, you know, big firm lawyer yep. where, um, you know, I went to law school. And, and, you know, I had it always in my mind that I wanted to do something to give back, whether it was like through a pro bono opportunity or, uh, you know, through volunteer work. Uh, but, you know, I, I was attracted to the money, too. Right. Uh, and I went to, you know, one of the biggest firms in D.C. I was making more money than I probably needed. Um, had a nice house. Uh, and then the triggering event for me, the real wake-up call, was, was 17 years ago this week. Right? On September 11th, mm -hmm. uh, I was working in D.C. And, and, uh, and I'm sure you have, you, you know, your own experience to share. But for me, it was, you know, going into D.C., uh, you heard about the planes hitting the World Trade Center. You're starting to get all this news filtering out of what's actually happening. I worked at 12th and E Street in Washington uh, in the Warner Theater building. We went up to the roof because we heard about, you know, planes hitting the Pentagon. We're, we're looking at all this happening around us, right? And we're, we're looking at the news and, and just horrible, horrible tragedy striking the United States and you know you see all your colleagues starting to grieve and come together but you start getting pushed out subtly right right yes. you're not and sort of included in that in that grieving process yes. and then you know stares and, and murmurs and uh, i remember um, my mom calling me that night saying you should stock up on groceries you know they were living up in jersey and i was down in dc i'm like well why don't you like i got plenty of groceries at home i'll be fine and you just started to hear these stories about Sikhs being targeted and, and Muslims being targeted or anyone who didn't look American enough being targeted. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I think, you know, going to work, um, 
you know, it was just sort of difficult. You know, you're in the nation's capital. Uh, you want to grieve with everyone, but you're also like on edge a little bit. Yeah, 100%. 100%. I, yeah. And so, you know, and then the building I was working in, uh, there was a homeless guy, Jimmy, who, who would frequent the different corners around the building. And, you know, I'd be with firm partners or clients as a young associate there, and I'd walk out, uh, you know, w going to lunch. And then, you know, he'd start yelling. I found Bin Laden. I found Bin Laden. I got him. And yeah. you know, he just and everyone's looking, looking at, at you. Yeah, and it's just so embarrassing. It's, yeah. yeah, and so, so all of that is a long way of saying that you know, September 11th was a wake-up call for a lot of folks for a lot of reasons. And for me, it really triggered the question that why was it the case that I was born in New Jersey? You know, I grew up in New Jersey. I played every high school sport, little league sport. You know, checked all the boxes did everything you're supposed to do, you know, ideal childhood, you know, lots of friends uh, in college, everything, law school, uh, you know, was on the, the student government and everything. And then I wake up uh, one day where I'm just made to feel completely un-American. Right. And, and as a complete outsider and right. as, you know, associated with people who were responsible for these attacks. And then you wonder why that's the case. And it goes back to what I was saying. We, we've done a wonderful job succeeding in so many different areas, except in those areas of, of, of public service and first responders, those, those jobs that are so intertwined with what it means to be American, yeah. uh, where you're visibly doing things that, that folks associate with you know, what it is what to be an American. American right. and, and maybe that's... You know, that was just my thought process. And, and so I thought, well, what can I do at this point? You know, I, I really want to do something. And so I, you know, I decided with my law degree, uh, one of the best things that I could do, you know, people were, were motivated to, to join the military or go into military service. Right. We couldn't do that, actually. Yeah, yeah we, so we, we couldn't do that at the time. Uh, but I, so I thought, I want to be a prosecutor. You know, I, I, had all, I enjoyed being a trial lawyer. Uh, and so I started applying to pretty much every uh, U.S. Attorney's Office on the East Coast. Uh, and I got offers from a number of them uh, and ended up becoming a federal prosecutor in Brooklyn. That allowed me the opportunity to get up in front of juries, uh, in front of grand juries, work with federal agents, work on terrorism cases, work on national security cases, work on you know, financial fraud cases as a sick, looking you know, the way I do. And then, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, those 12 jurors that I got in front of and just tried this case, I tried a lot of cases. I got to say that I was Grabeerson, Gutterwell, and I represented the United States in this matter, right? right. And what, what is, what's the retort to that, right? right? Like, how do you tell that, you're, you're a federal prosecutor putting bad guys in jail, vindicating the rights uh, of the United States in cases, representing the United States, and it just built from there. Um, thousand percent. Yeah, no, I, I, that really resonates with me because when I, 9-11 happened, I, w I was very young. I was only 11 or 12 years old. So I didn't really understand the global and political significance of it until like a year or two later. But I immediately understood the significance to our community. Yeah. Because my dad stopped going to work. Yep. Um, you know, kids would start looking at you weirder. Yeah. Um, you just, and it's, it's weird, like you said, you're, you're an American, so you're grieving because your fellow Americans have passed away. But I, I think the way you described it is perfect. You're kind of subtly pushed to the side right. that, like, you're, you're not really an American. Right. You don't fit what it means to be an American. And you, it hurts because you – I personally – I mean, I, I, my parents are from India, but – and I – enjoy going there but i i think of myself as an american it's first the only country yeah, i grew yeah this is it this is all i yeah, know yeah. like when i go to india it's more of a novelty than it is like this is my home yeah. right yeah. um and it that i remember as a child that that hurt right i i i don't like didn't have that much awareness but i knew that 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 was painful and and it's interesting that our the the response from a lot of our 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 parents generation was almost this, I, I used to call it this like prophylactic patriotism that they would yeah. start putting flags everywhere. Oh my God. So I was just going <laughs> to say this. So I would, do, you know what I do? Because um, 
because I, 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 I have the same same thing. I would like I had a little bike. I'd ride around the neighborhood. <laughs> I put an American flag on it yeah. so like people wouldn't look at me weird. Yeah. As a twelve year old, I just <laughs> kind of saying it out loud for the first time. But yeah. now I'm like, man, that's kind of weird. Yeah. I, but I, that's I what you had to do. First time. Yeah. Uh, I was at the Gurdwara and, and there was like an uncle who had a American flag decal on his passenger window. And it was like right in the middle of the window. I'm like, what, why do you have that? He's like, well, if somebody looks at my car, they'll see the flag, then they'll see me. Right? And, right. That, and, and so it, that in a very basic way, that's what I was trying to do in a, in a larger yes. way, right? Like instead of just putting the flag out there as a symbol, why don't we do things that intertwine ourselves in what 100%. it means to, to be an American? 100%. And to me, that was public service. If you like Sick Meets World, you should definitely check out our sponsor, SickNet, SickNet Stories app. I know you guys are probably thinking, you're probably saying, you know what, Sean, Gerwin, I love Sick Meets World. I love you guys, but you guys are super boring for my kids and you do nothing for them. But SickNet has you covered. They have over 100 audio stories that are great for children. I checked out a story that covered martial arts. And Guru Gobind Singh Ji, I was super impressed with the quality and the vividness of their animation. If you want to help educate your children about sick values and history in an entertaining way, you should definitely download their app, Sick Net Stories app, on your app store, on your phone, on your tablet, on your computer, on your a million other devices that you have. It's seriously such a great product. Download it. One thing that I noticed is growing up, and the results of the campaign have confirmed it, is that the values that we were fighting for as Americans after 9-11 um, and, and just in general um, were so, I had noticed growing up, so tightly aligned with, with what our community aspired to, equality, gender equality, racial equality, religious tolerance. Um, I felt like if we had communicate if we communicated that in addition to oh, yeah. uh just putting a flag yep. it would change people's minds and I and I always suspected that but in New Jersey actually we ran our first focus group in 2014 mm-hmm. years before we launched the campaign and this was just a theory that I had now we were putting it to the test and we were in a focus group I can look in and people right. uh, see them but they could not see me and we just kind of told them about our values. Mm-hmm. And first, we showed them pictures. And there was one woman, this time the tea party was very big. She described herself as a tea party person. She saw a picture of a six, said, never want to see this person in their neighborhood, want, wouldn't want them near their kids. What, it was just like she was the first person to act, and she had the most like, viscerally negative reaction. And I was like, well, not surprised, but I'm glad yeah. we're seeing this. Yeah. Uh, other people were not as viscerally negative, but but as she found out that we believed in gender equality, as we found out that we're willing to fight for people uh, that are not six, um, and as we believe that they're in racial equality, you could kind of see her mind, something was going on in her mind. She wasn't saying anything, but something was going on. Then you go around at the end of the, end of the focus group, and they go back and basically kind of get their opinions of what they thought of all this information. And then she's like, well, how do I convert to Sikhism? (laughs) (laughs) So not the purpose of the exercise. You don't, we don't believe in converting people. Uh, But it it was just showed the power of our, our values. Right. Right. And we just haven't been good messengers. And we had not been communicating. So that, that, that's why I felt like what you've been doing is so effective because it effectively does just that. Right. Um, and so on that point, uh, you went through 9-11. Yeah. You are now the chief of law, law enforcement. You know, fast forward 17 years later, yeah. you were the face of law enforcement of the state uh, that neighbored uh, where this event happened. How, how, and I know you touched on this a little bit, but how, how does the fact that all that you had experienced growing up mm-hmm. about what we just discussed to now being the face of law enforcement in just you know, 17 years. Yeah. I mean, how, do you have any, like, do you ever, I'm sure you ruminate on that or think about that or you, I think you know. it's incredibly, yep. you know, it just 
it's surreal at times, right? It, it's a little bit overwhelming that that I you know when you start thinking about it. Uh, and I think when I first when it first really hit me that everything had come full circle, that what was just sort of a, a little idea to go into public service to be a line prosecutor, which you know you're ba just on the line. They call you line assistant U.S. attorneys, right? Uh, a line prosecutor in Brooklyn, then a line prosecutor in Newark and working your way up through the office and running a unit and running the, the cyber crimes unit and the, mm -hmm. the financial crimes unit. And then a Republican governor tapping me to become the Bergen County prosecutor, right. Governor Christie at the time. Uh, and that was in January of 2016 when I got sworn in in Bergen County. And a couple months later, uh, you know, I got invited to speak at Ground Zero. Oh, wow. Uh, and, and I got to speak at Ground Zero uh, to launch what's called the Police Unity Tour. It's, it's done during Police Week each year. I think it's in uh, April. Um, and they start a bike ride from there all the way down to Washington, D.C., to the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial, the Fallen Officers Memorial, to raise money for families of, of fallen police officers. But it launches there, and it starts with Chapter 37, which is named for the 37 Port Authority police officers killed at Ground Zero. And they invited me to speak uh, because a couple of uh, detectives from my old office were part of this group. And I, and I s spoke from a podium right next to the monument and the memorial f for the two you know, towers, right? That's when it just sort of overwhelmed me. Like oh, I got wow. through that moment. I'm like, this an, ev nice. <laughs> an event that sort of triggered me to go into public service. Yep. Now it's come full circle. Yep. I'm here as a chief law enforcement officer for my county, Bergen County at the right. time, a county of a million people. And they've invited me back every year. Uh, and, and I did it every year. And they invited me back this year as attorney general. Right. And it, it, it's just remarkable. And I think that just shows you how much progress we made. I, I think it shows you what the power of just one person getting involved in public service can can lead to. Right. Uh, and, you know, it, it's incredibly overwhelming. I don't think... Uh, I've ever, 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 ever imagined that I could end up in this type of position. I don't think, you know, you said we're our own limiters, right? Everyone was limiting us, right? We were only told only a handful of options were available to us. We could be the best, like, surgeon, or we could, you know, right. to hate to go back to that. Uh, I never thought that, that I'd be here. I never thought I'd walk into a building where they'd have my picture downstairs. Right, yeah, when I saw your picture next to <laughs> Governor Murphy's, yeah. I was like, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, and so yeah. Um, you know, it, it's I've never I never thought it, but guess what? It yeah. is possible, and 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 hopefully others see that it's possible for them too. Right. Uh, I want to get into some of your some of your priorities sure. as Attorney General. Uh, one of your biggest priorities is um, improving relations with law enforcement and minority communities, particularly the African American community. What have you been doing um, on that front since you've been in office? So, I mean, I'll give you a perfect example. I just came here from the basement of a church in Patterson, New Jersey, where I met with black clergy. Um, and, you know, what I've been doing is meeting with a lot of, a lot of community stakeholders across the state. Um, we, we have set, um, we have put into action uh, programs. Uh, one of the things I'm most proud of uh, is something we call 2121. It's a 21 county, 21st century policing tour. We're mandating all of our 21 county prosecutors to hold four community meetings in the community, to go into basement churches basements of churches themselves and talk to community members. And that's 84 mandated community meetings with the idea that more will follow. Right. And the importance there is that we've seen all across the country that there are huge divides between law enforcement and community in some places. And we've seen that there's mistrust and, and there's fear and, and there's all sorts of issues. I don't think we have that wide of a gap in New Jersey, mm -hmm. but the thing is that it's still a gap. Right. But that gives me hope because you could bridge gaps and you could right. bridge divides. And you bridge them by building trust and accountability and you build them, you bridge them by you know, promoting understanding in a friendly setting, like the church basement I was in uh, this morning because it's easier to do it there than by a yellow police tape after a shooting. Yep, and so we started these 84 meetings and we did them topically. The first uh, quarter we talked about officer-involved shootings because we didn't want to run away from that topic. It's happening all across the country. It's a flashpoint. We wanted to come up with uh, you know, a program where we could explain, this is how we train our officers. If there's a shooting, this is how we investigate it. And this is why you should trust the outcomes. And we are the people 
who will be making those decisions. Ultimately, the Attorney General reviews every officer-involved shooting in the state right. to make sure that it, if, if it's lawful, we say it's lawful. If it's not justified, we present it to a grand jury. We want you to understand the process, and we want you to understand uh, why we run it out this way, why we can't share certain information early in an investigation. Uh, so that was the first quarter. The second quarter, we talked about opioids. The third quarter, this quarter, we're talking about immigrant rights and immigrant trust. And the last quarter, we'll talk about bias crimes. So encouraging dialogue is important to, to improve those relations. And the other thing is through those attorney general directives that I talked about, we put out directives to produce trust and accountability. We're sharing videos of officer-involved shooting cases mm -hmm. proactively. In other mm -hmm. words, we're not sitting on them and waiting and trying to you know, say, we're going to fight you if you take us to court before we turn this over. We're saying, let us run out the initial investigation, then we'll turn it over. Good, bad, or indifferent, we want to promote trust. Right. And we issued that directive in February. Early warning systems. We put in systems in all of our police departments in the state to identify bad officers. We've uh, put in systems to do drug testing of all officers in the state. It was never mandated across the state. We did oh, that wow. just to promote trust. Right. See, policy can just fix the little... Trust. Gaps like that. Yeah. yeah, trust and accountability. And, and you know, it's, it's just an important part of the message that we want to send, that we're, we're, we want to be as transparent as possible where we can. Uh, and then, you know, another piece of that is uh, we're standing up a conviction review unit, a statewide conviction review unit. We want to make sure our prosecutors did their jobs the right way, and if they made mistakes, we want to, to find out why that happened. And so where there are claims of actual innocence, we want to put into mechanisms put into place mechanisms to review those cases. You know, if there's new technology we could bring to bear on old convictions, uh, that's something we're standing up. We have a group uh, that's put together to figure out how to identify cases for, for that uh, unit to review. Right. Uh, and so we have a former Supreme Court justice from New Jersey leading that effort, and we'll announce that soon. And, and, and the final way we're improving relations, which I can control, uh, you know, I'm responsible for a department of 8,000 people. 13 divisions to include the state police, uh, which is 4,000 uh, individuals, 2,800 troopers, 1,200 civilians. We are putting into place real diversity action plans on how we are going to improve the diversity of law enforcement, specifically state police. Uh, we are training all 8,000 employees on implicit bias mm -hmm. to include our prosecutors, to include our state troopers, to include our detectives. Uh, and we are taking steps to, to have diversity in our suppliers too. We have $35 million in outside legal spend. Mm -hmm. We want to make sure that, you know, our suppliers are doing the right thing too, right. the law firms that we use. So it, it's just, you know, all those actions, all those actions, actions policy, yep. uh, like you said, policy can have an incredible effect, but it's also just meeting people, right? right. Just, uh, you know, and I don't, I don't really pass up an opportunity to do that because not only am I forwarding the agenda of the office, going back to what we were talking about earlier, I think it's incredible that uh, that a sick can go into the basement of a Baptist church in Patterson and talk to a room full of mm -hmm. uh, Baptist ministers uh, about law enforcement policy. Right. That's amazing. Right. Right. And and right. so if you touch you know twenty or thirty religious leaders or you know it's a multiplying effect. No, and that's absolutely. always in the back yep. back of my mind. Yep. I think I think what sometimes people struggle with policies usually not any single policy is a silver bullet, but a compilation of policies can make a big, Huge. big, big difference, Huge. particularly over a long period of time. And, you know, just not, New Jersey is unique, too, because right. the Attorney General's office is, is considered one of the more powerful offices in the country because we have complete criminal jurisdiction, and we're also the lawyers for the state. So no state agency can have its own lawyers. They all have to go, with a couple exceptions, but they're all in the division of law, which is under the AG's office in the mm -hmm. Department of Law and Public Safety. So, you know, you, you have the ability to set policy for law enforcement, which mm -hmm. has a huge, huge uh, impact on folks. And you don't have to go through a legislative process there right. or a rulemaking process. Right. It is literally... Take months and years. No, it's, yeah, I mean, it's literally writing a directive. But even when we write those directives, whether it's on body cameras, use of force, the way I operate is I bring everyone to the table. So we're doing an immigrant trust directive on how we operate and why we don't cooperate with federal civil immigration authorities to really build trust with our immigrant communities. We have the ACLU at the table. We have Make the Road New Jersey at the table. We have the Police Chiefs Association at the table. We have the PBA at the table. Mm -hmm. We're talking to the wardens. We're collaborating. 
we're all not going to agree. That's the understanding, but we're all going to be heard. Yes. And then I'm going to make the policy that I make. And then when I sign it, it's policy. Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, a couple more points on, on, on policy. A big piece of policy that, that I know our community is concerned about is, is immigration, yeah. particularly um, pieces of rhetoric in now the actions uh, that are coming from the federal government. Um, I kind of want to ask you a two-part question here. Uh, as someone that comes from an immigrant family, just as a, on a personal level, what are your feelings on that? Uh, because... It's my belief that immigration is the lifeblood of our country, um, and it's unfortunate to see that. And then what are you doing substantively uh, as a G to, to address that? Sure. I mean, I, I think, you know, on a personal level, you know, having been the beneficiary of, uh, of the immigration process in this country and seeing uh, how it works and, and why it works and, and the value of it, you know, ultimately uh, that, that gives you more reason to, to fight for it. Right? right, you have a you you are the beneficiary of, of a policy, and, and so are we all. Right, right. At, at the end of the day, but right. we realize it as new immigrants. Right. Um, so you know, when I look at family separation, when I look at zero tolerance, when I look at the way we're treating people, when I look at the 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 residual effects that it has on law enforcement, meaning that it, it's it's pushing people into the shadows. We 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 talked about trust for a long time. Mm -hmm. We spend so much time going out there into these meetings and to build trust. And when you have a federal government that is driving immigrant communities into the shadows, when it is making it more difficult for victims of crime to come forward, you know, immigrant communities are victims of crime too. Mm -hmm. And when, they're, when you're scaring people from testifying, that undermines everything that we do in law enforcement. Right. Uh, and then, you know, just as human beings, you know, I, I have three kids, three little girls, nine, seven, and five. Um, there's going to be a time when they're older, probably in 10 years, sometimes, you know, I think, you know, hopefully it's later, but yeah. uh, in 10 years, they're going to, they're going to ask me the question, you know, dad, what did you do when, when they were putting kids in cages? Right. What did you do when, when families were being separated? What did you do when we were promoting this rhetoric where we were pitting communities against community? What did you do, you know, when the president was dehumanizing people left and right? I want to be able to say, we held the line as as attorneys general, and, right. and we fought back. And so, what am I doing? You know, we're putting together this directive that I mentioned, uh, that where we're going to give guidance to all thirty plus thousand law enforcement in the state. And that guidance will start from the 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 point of view that we, in state law enforcement, enforce state criminal laws. We're not here to enforce federal civil immigration laws. There are certain uh, circumstances under which we could ask you about your immigration status but we will never make that the basis of stopping anyone. And here are the limited circumstances under which we can inquire about your immigration status mm -hmm. after arrest, mm -hmm. right? And so it can never be the basis for stopping somebody. So we're spelling out those parameters. We're spelling out how we're going to cooperate in jails. You know, are we going to uh, let ICE just approach uh, folks in state prisons and in, in state jails or in county jails? Or are we going to have informed consent? We're going to let the inmate know that ICE wants to come talk to you, or mm -hmm. you have the right not to talk to them, right? So we're, mm -hmm. we're, we're figuring all this out, and that's what's going to be borne out in this directive. Mm -hmm. That's policy, right? And then using the litigation tools that we have, we're fighting the administration in court. You know, New Jersey intervened in the DACA case in Texas. The federal government was being sued by the state of Texas and other Republican attorneys general to declare DACA unconstitutional, the 2012 memorandum. And because we were not parties in any of the other prior litigation, because the prior administration chose not to get involved in that, mm -hmm. we were able to intervene as a defendant. We said the federal government is not going to stand up to defend this policy. They're complicit in this. Judge, let us in and fight this preliminary injunction. And we did. And we won. Oh, wow. And that preliminary injunction motion was denied. There'll be a longer fight, but we're standing up for dreamers, right? right? And so we're standing up against uh, any policy that the administration is pushing in the courts or position that they're pushing in the courts. So we're standing up against a travel ban. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court on travel ban version 3.0 went the other way, but we fought that every step of the way. Right. So we're going in the courts to stand up for immigrant communities, for our dreamers, 
and we're standing up for them through policy. And then there's just a small note. I swore in in my second week of office, mm -hmm. uh, the first dreamer admitted to uh, the New Jersey State Bar. Right, that's pa awesome. Yeah, Parthiv Patel, and I saw him last night at an event, and it's just, I'm just happy to see that he's, you know, has got an Esquire at the end of his name, that right. he's a member of the New Jersey State Bar. Right, I mean, for, to me, I think what, I think what, what people sometimes struggle with is that what makes America great around the, in the eyes of the world is that no matter who you are, no matter what corner of the globe that you come from, you can literally come here yeah. and reach the highest echelons of society like you have done. Like right. you have... That's what the American dream. dream. That, exactly. Right. And what people talk about, people talk about the American dream around the world. And I don't think people truly grasp, even our own citizens, maybe even when you're two or three generations in, right. totally understand how much that dream is, is, is valued around the world. Sure. And it, not every country has that opportunities. Not at all. So when I think when we, when we, when, when I heard this rhetoric, uh, attacking immigrants to me my initial thought was like well this is attacking what makes America great right, right. Um, I mean that's a promise of the American dream right that 100%. no matter where you come from what you look like what you believe who you love if you work hard right. you could achieve success here right and, and what undermines that more than that rhetoric that you're talking about right and and on that point um, you know just objectively there's been high levels of corruption uh, within the current administration even today um, uh, the campaign manager for uh, the president has just uh, agreed to cooperate with uh, Special Counsel Mueller. Because you're within the, you know, close to the jurisdiction of, of the president's properties and just, you know, New Jersey, like you said, is one of the more powerful AG right. positions in the country. What are you doing to fight back uh, corruption, uh, not only in the executive branch, but just political corruption in general? So, I mean, political corruption has been a problem time immemorial, right? And uh, particularly in New Jersey. Uh, right. We've had a pretty sordid history uh, in this state with scandal. Um, so, interestingly enough, this week on Monday, uh, we announced uh, the creation of something that we've called the Office of Public Integrity and Accountability yep. within the Attorney General's office. And I recruited a former federal prosecutor from the U.S. Attorney's office, Tom Eicher, who used to be uh, the chief of the criminal division there in New Jersey and the deputy chief U.S. attorney most recently um, to, to lead that office. Uh, Tom uh, was the lead prosecutor on the House banking uh, investigation scandal, which resulted in the conviction of five congresspeople, I think, if not more, the sergeant at arms. Uh, he prosecuted um, uh, uh, Jared Kushner's father mm -hmm. uh, in New Jersey for tax issues uh, in the last decade. Um, and he's led, you know, prosecutions of councilmen uh, in this state. So he brings a wealth of experience uh, to that office. But what we did is we put that office in a separate silo. We took it out of the, the Division of Criminal Justice and their reporting chain. He'll have his own detectives, his own assistant pro um, deputy attorneys general, his own staff, and he'll report directly to me. Mm -hmm. And that's meant to insulate it from influence from anywhere else. Mm -hmm. and, and so this elite unit will be tasked with looking at uh, corruption across the state, in, in no matter the space, whether it's in law enforcement, whether it's in government, whether it's in local government. Uh, and they're going to take a hard look. Uh, and they're going to also look at other more sensitive investigations, like civil rights investigations involving police officers, internal affairs type of investigations. And, and you know, you touched on issues related uh, to the president's properties. If there's criminal activity here and we have venue over it, we certainly will look into it without getting to the specifics of investigations, which I, I can't, mm -hmm. as a prosecutor, uh, tell you if we're looking at a particular defendant right. or a particular issue. But suffice to say, if there's a nexus to New Jersey, if our laws have been broken, and if we have the ability to hold people accountable, we will. Uh, what, what surprised you most about this job? I think, I think, uh, you know, uh, the sheer scope of it, right. the sheer magnitude of, of the, of the office. Um, you know, we, we, we sort of touched on my, my trajectory on how I got here. Uh, I was very happy being a county prosecutor. I never 
You know, New Jersey is an appointed attorney general. You don't campaign for it. It's one of seven states that does, seven, I think, that don't have elected uh, mm -hmm. attorneys general. It must feel good not to be a politician and have all this. It's uh, amazing, right? Yeah, it's yeah, amazing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a federal model, months. right? Yeah. It's a federal model yeah. that you don't want your attorney general out there campaigning right. and raising funds from defense lawyers and right, right, from right. private interests. Um, so I was, you know, I, I tell the story and I'll share it with you. Uh, we have something uh, at Disney World that they call Jersey Week at Disney. Uh, and they call it that because there's the school uh, teachers conference here yeah. and they do it on a Thursday and Friday so you could uh, take a vacation and and all of Jersey more or less goes down to Disney World in November during that yeah. that weekend so I was at Disney World with my kids uh, and my wife had the two older ones and I was with the little one uh, on line to get a picture with the little mermaid and I get a call and I don't recognize the number and I answer it and the person on the other line said, I'm, he gave me his name uh, from Governor Murphy's transition team. The governor had just won. He said, we're interested in speaking to you about the position of attorney general. And my reaction was, of New Jersey? Uh, and he said, yeah, we like what you're doing in Bergen County. Uh, someone's given us your name, and we'd love to sit down with you. Can you come in tomorrow morning? I said, well, that's tough. First of all, like, I had to really I'm make sure. i a picture with the little mermaid. Yeah. Please, yeah. Well, I had to step out of line. I had to step out yeah. of line. Uh, and, and so, yeah. so, and I also had to sort of restrain myself because I thought it was a friend pulling my leg. Yeah. And then I said, okay, uh, I can't come in tomorrow. I'm at, at Disney. Um, but I'll come in when I get back, which is in a couple of days. And in the meantime, I'm thinking, hopefully I didn't lose the opportunity. Yeah. Uh, he's like, can you send me a resume? And I had to go to the hotel office. Right. To, I didn't have a resume. That's how, how happy I was in my current position. Right. That you know, I don't didn't have an updated resume. Right. So I'm at the one computer at this hotel, right. creating a resume. Hotel. People are are knocking on the door trying to use the business center. Yeah. Uh, and I went through a long interview process, um, and I ended up here. Uh, and you know, the governor announced me in mid December. And I spent the first week, first month be, between mid-December and mid-January winding down my role as the county prosecutor and trying to get ready for this opportunity. Yeah. You know, you always know in broad strokes what the attorney general's office does. But when you get here, you know, you could prepare all you want. I think it's been eight months now. I think I finally have a little bit of handle of everything we do and who's doing it. We have 13 divisions. Okay, and so if it was just law enforcement alone, I could handle it, I, and I expected it. If it was just being the lawyer for the state alone, great. I'm also responsible for the division of gaming enforcement, meaning all the casinos in New Jersey, mm -hmm. the racing commission, the boxing commission, wow. the juvenile justice commission, the state police. We have great deputies. Yeah. Uh, the state police, each division director, uh, alcohol and beverage, uh, you know, and I'm missing uh, civil rights. We're sitting in the Division of Consumer Affairs, which has responsibility for all professional licenses in the state, including doctors, nurses, and other licensing boards, uh, including cosmetologists, mm -hmm. right? So all the cosmetology licenses, I think, might have my name on it or might have uh, the division, <laughs> you know, which is ironic, right? Yeah. You go to a barbershop and you'll see, like, Phil Murphy, <laughs> Sheila Oliver, Paul Rodriguez, and Kabir Graywell. That's actually pretty Yeah, and, and so um, just the, the sheer range of it. But... What you need to do to be a good manager is have a good team. Right. And, and I'm lucky that we have an incredible team. Um, we're putting in processes in place, putting processes in place to ensure that, you know, we're uh, navigating uh, as, all these issues as well as we can and, and addressing everything that filters up and making sure, all, you know, not everything can filter up, right? Right. And just making sure we have good processes right. and controls. So, um, so I think the range. I want to just briefly touch on this one on the radio incident, and then I want to kind of get, you know, give you space to give advice and thoughts to to to, to younger six. Um, so obviously, about two months ago, two New Jersey hosts said they would not remember your name because you have a turban. Um, I, personally, for me, the, the the whole thing was about calling you turban man. I think that was like less offensive than saying yeah. they literally would not remember your name because you wore a turban. But I wanted to just. Well, it was also more than that. It, and they said, listen, if that offends you, then maybe lose a turban and I might remember your name. Yes. yes. Yeah. And I think that to me was the offensive yeah. part. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to give you, you know, kind of a different way to, to, to address that because uh, we talked about all those things that you experienced when you were growing up. And my thought was when they said that, 
it must have conjured those memories. One hundred percent. I think. I think on a personal level, though, you know, being a public figure for for a while now, it didn't directly offend me. Right. Right. I, I wasn't. You know. I. I wasn't hurt personally by it. Right. Um, you know. I've said this before. I have really thick skin, and and people have been more creative in what they've called me, and and, right. and more insulting. Right. Um, but what troubled me was, you know, just sort of thinking about. I guess in some way, uh, all those people, you know, who who had said that to me in the past, but also, you know, the possibility of people being hurt physically. Right. Uh, One person yeah. in New Jersey was stabbed to death recently. I I am not familiar with with that. Right. Um, but but what what troubled me is that when you when you when you look at it in the context in which we're living right now in this moment, right? When we talked about the president and his comments, right? Calling people animals and, and cockroaches and, and de- dehumanizing people, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and making it just much more easy to, to say things about people and seeing as a law enforcement officer an uptick in bias offenses, not just words, but physical conduct. And, and, you know, I'm very sensitive not to the personal attacks, but sensitive to the fact that comments can lead to hateful conduct. And so what concerned me most was that are they legitimizing somebody who's really close to that edge, uh, legitimizing that person, making him think it's okay for him to do something physical, to act out in, mm-hmm. in, in a violent way towards somebody. I, you know, I, I don't even worry about the violent conduct because I, I have the state troopers with me all the time. Right. Right. So I, I don't. You know, I have a detail, I, but you don't have a detail. Your right. dad doesn't have a detail. Right. Uh, so, you know, Saheb Singh, not uh, the 71-year-old in California who was going out for a walk right. in July. He didn't have a detail. Right. I don't know if, you know, this whole moment pushed those people over the edge and said it's okay to beat up on, on six or people who look different. Sarjeet Singh Mully, you know, a month, mm-hmm. you know, between those two incidents, I think a month earlier in mm-hmm. July, a 50-year-old who's putting up campaign signs, signs yeah. yeah, and who's physically assaulted, and his attackers tell him he don't, he doesn't belong here. Right. Right. It's that part of it that right. that really bothered me by this whole thing, and I, and that's why I think people with a platform, whether it's a podcast, whether it's a radio show, whether it's us in politics or in, in public service, we have a responsibility to be better in this moment because. There are so many people teetering on that edge because we're seeing it in the uptick in, in hateful conduct that we just have to be better, all of us, right. and elevate the rhetoric here and just be mindful of it. You know, no, ho- hold your beliefs. You know, right. you could hate me all you want, but you, you could say it in a responsible manner. Right, absolutely. I mean, I think, I think what it was, you know, usually I'm very pro people being able to take shots at, at public officials, but the reason why I had an issue with this was because they basically said, if you just stop being who you yeah, are, yeah. Yeah. then then it's okay. Then 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 we'll then we'll yeah. Then you're worth remembering. Right. It's like if Obama went up to Mitt Romney and said, "Well, yeah. maybe I'll address Mitt if he wasn't a Mormon." Right. 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 Like that just sounds nuts right. when you even say that out loud. Yeah, I mean, lose the most visible and meaningful aspect of a sex identity, and then, then you're worth remembering. Right. Yeah. And, and I, I think the reason why I think what it is is like when you, when you were growing up, that's kind of implicitly how people were were thinking right right people. that like maybe we can get ahead if you know we abandon our identity or maybe if yeah. we you know maybe if we try to like put the sticker on the the window on, yeah. on the window the, the prophylactic page right exactly so yeah that that's what that's I, yeah. I I don't even think they truly understood right where they were yeah, we fought that pressure. To, we always thought that was the easiest way to assimilate. Just just cut your hair and everything's right. normal and you'll be accepted. Right. You know, lose the turban. Right. Um, I, I want to kind of get into what you think our community, we talked about our community getting into public service. I wanted to, to start getting into that a little bit before we conclude. What... Why do you think it's important for our community into public service? I know this you, you kind of been kind of going around this point, but if you want to address it directly, I, I think you know if, if if we want to truly you know be part and parcel of, of, of this of this country and, and what it means to be American, I think that's an important step for us to integrate into every aspect, of, you know, without assimilating and losing our identity. Right. 
completely, but if we really want to be part and parcel, we just can't take all the benefits of the American dream without contributing to it, right? right? And contributing to it means, you know, uh, paying our deposit in, in that bank, right? right? And that's through public service. And it doesn't, it doesn't have to be, you know, you don't have to go be a cop, but, you know, go volunteer, go do something, right? And we do that, and that aligns with Six Values, but let's just be more proactive about it. Right. And, and when, when you see Six out there, whether it's on a volunteer basis, whether it's lawyers doing pro bono immigration work, whether it's, you know, organizing around uh, like a cleanup in a poor neighborhood, those are just such meaningful things. You know, you do it for yourself, for the seva concept of it, mm -hmm. for the selfless service, but the residual benefits are just huge, right? And and if you if we start focusing on public service, uh, I, I just have this belief, because I've seen it, that we could change perceptions, not even change perceptions, clear away misconceptions. Right. I think it's more, you know, and just really explain to folks who six are. And if they see, going back to your focus group, if they see six and understand six beliefs, they'll realize that we're, you know, I've said it before, we're, we believe in a radical egalitarianism, right? Which is so in line with the foundational principles of, of this country. Right. Right? I, I just, I can't stress People it enough. People are with it when they yeah. find out. I can't because stress it enough. They yeah. when they see us. I mean, we talked about Dr. King in the beginning. I mean, that, that you know, a, uh, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. I mean, that's like, that's just so mm -hmm. in line with everything we, we do and, and think about that. We're, we're taught to fight injustice wherever we see it. Right. You know, and so I just think, you know, it's, if we make that final push, the, whatever rise in hate and intolerance we're seeing in this country is going to subside. And that's not just for six, it's for all minority communities, I right. think. What, so say you're a young person, a young sick, you're 17, 18 years old, and you want, you're, you're listening to this and you want to get into to law enforcement or public policy or right. politics or what have you. What is your advice to them? So my advice would be, I mean, obviously, if, if you want to, you know, go to be a prosecutor, you need to go to law school, you need to, you know, go through a series of steps. My, my, my advice would be, you know, start at the, the smallest possible level you can, right? Go volunteer at your police department, go see if they have like a junior explorer program, go, you know, go, you know, go do the little things. Because I think quite often, um, you know, we've seen this in our in our brief immigrant experience here you know sick will say well I want to run for Congress right I'm gonna run for Senate or I'm gonna run for like you know state Senate yep. and and no one understands that you got to pay like small little dues right? right go you know be on your school board right. you know, go be on your city council you know go be like a mayor mm -hmm. you know you've got to sort of pay your dues and work your way up right. and and in the same way, like if you want to be, you know, a cop, you know, the the ones that I've hired, I've hired a lot of cops, and and I've seen a lot of troopers come through. It's like an early commitment, you know. It's it's going through these, you know, junior police camps. It's it's volunteering and 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 going through, uh, you know, the the the, the little steps, you, you know, to that you have to to go through to get to that spot. So. You know, look for opportunities, um, you know, at the local level. Look for opportunities at your prosecutor's offices, internships, you know. Really make sure you want to do it. And whatever you decide to do, just do it well. If you don't want to be a public servant, whatever you do, just do it well. Right. You know, uh, and I think if you have that attitude, whatever opportunities um, are out there will we'll line up for you. Right. So this is the last question. Um, what are your thoughts on the future of the United States, given how turbulent our politics is? You know, that's a, a great question. And I think we are in no doubt uh, in the midst of one of the most challenging uh, crises we, we faced. And I don't think I'm overstating it as a democracy. I mean, we're in the midst of a constitutional crisis of epic proportions where you know, we have a, a president that has no respect for rules and norms and has no respect for the Constitution, and we have uh, an institution that's supposed to be a check on, on the president, just totally abdicating its role in this process, uh, in, in, which is Congress. Yep. Uh, and we have the courts, which are now, uh, for a time being, have been a check, and I'm not even hopeful 
you know, how long that could sustain because you're having an influx, and a very quick and steady influx of new judges, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so it's up to, to folks like me now to bring lawsuits in the courts to challenge and be a check on the administration. Uh, so, you know, it, it is a very serious crisis, but I am hopeful uh, that we will endure this like we have other tests of this democracy. I think the, the foundations of our system of government are strong enough to survive this. Um, you know, I don't, I'm not a political person in the sense that I didn't run mm -hmm. uh, to achieve this office, but I think um, it goes back to what I was saying earlier. We have to get involved uh, at a local level. We have to all get involved, wh whether it's six, uh, all affected communities who are having uh, finding this moment to be difficult and challenging, have to get involved at whatever level they can get involved. Representation at every level matters, engagement matters more now than ever before. Uh, and, and I am hopeful based on what I'm seeing that we will turn this tide and, and really reclaim this moment. And uh, you know, I've said it before in, in remarks I've given that I'm confident that you know, we will all come together to make America the best version of itself. And that's gonna be incumbent on us to do that by getting engaged. And for me, that's doing what I'm doing. For you, that's bringing light to these issues through these discussions and getting the community engaged. Uh, for somebody else who's a lawyer, it might be you know, providing pro bono representation to an immigrant in a deportation case. But we all just have to get engaged. Yep. Absolutely, totally agree. This has been great. Thank you so much. Yeah. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. If you like the show, please rate and review the podcast on iTunes, subscribe to Sick Meets World on your favorite podcasting platform, and share it with your friends and family. Stay tuned for our next episode, which comes out next month. And of course, be sure to check out the National Sick Campaign website for more information.